0: 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're physically able, I would invite you to stand. I'm going to stay seated this morning, so you feel free to do that as well if you need to. Um, I'm going to pick up reading in verse 16. This is what the Word of God has to say. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if, I, even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boasting, this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, We were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and and often near death. Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxieties for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I, and I am not weak. Who is made to fall? Am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my Weakness, The God and Father of, of the Lord Jesus of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying at Damascus. the, the governor under a uh, king Artis, was, was guarding the, the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So in these final verses of chapter 11, Paul continues his defense of his apostleship and denounces. Uh, and, and his denouncement of those preaching a gospel contrary to the to the true gospel you may have heard this phrase before maybe your parents your grandparents or somebody who was wise in your life spoke this to you, you may have heard the idiom you ought not to toot your own horn you ever heard that uh, if you go across the pond to, to England, they, they say you should not blow your own trumpet. The same idiom, idiom, just sort of different cultural uh, expressions of it. To toot your own horn is to brag about your own achievements or to, to boast about your skills or successes. Um, one uh, one uh, 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 expert that I read on this said that the term uh, comes from the practice of announcing the arrival of an important guest at a formal gathering with a fanfare of horns and The idea is that a truly important person is recognized by others with heralds while a self important person remains unrecognized by others and must therefore blow their own trumpet and announce their own arrival. Now, that's good advice, by the way. You really ought not to be tooting your own horn or blowing your own trumpet. You ought to let others celebrate you generally. However, sometimes I think it is important, even necessary or required, that you toot your own horn, that you blow your own trumpet. When you're defending against arrogant braggarts who are leading others astray, I think you need to toot your own horn. And I think that's the case that's happening in this passage. In fact, I think that helps us understand what Paul is doing, why he's doing it, and the the devices he's using in this chapter to, to defend the gospel. Paul allows himself some room in these last few verses of chapter 11 to brag. Now, he calls it foolishness. He, he calls it for what it is. In fact, at one point he says, I'm talking like a crazy person, but, but he's bragging in order to defend against the, the braggarts that are leading people away from the gospel. His boasting is not to take any pride in his accomplishments. So that to understand the passage, you first need to understand he brags, but he's bragging not that you might be impressed with him. He's not taking any pride in his accomplishments, but rather he is showing the foolishness of all this bragging, both his and the the bragging of those who are attempting to lead others astray. And ultimately, he is drawing your attention to the glory and the power of God. I say it's a difficult passage to understand because Paul, in one sense, is using the, the arrogant bragging that his opponents are doing in order to defend his ministry and to shame theirs and so I want to talk this morning about false arrogance and worthless pride Paul demonstrating both of those false arrogance putting on airs pretending somebody you're not and, and, and worthless pride in other words putting some sense of importance in things that don't really matter and then the last thing I want to do this morning is come back to the, the, the understanding of what is true power and as you're reading the passage you may have noticed that in the passage as we were reading along this morning, Paul ends this chapter with a, a story that doesn't seem to fit. So he's just bragged about being Hebrew and Israelite. And in fact, he even says, I'm, I mean, in the Ben Smith paraphrase, he says, I'm a better Christian than you are. <laughs> And then he tells a story about being let down the, uh, the, the, the wall of a city, basically sneaking out of town because he's been opposed by, by, the, by the king or the ruler of the town, the governor of the town. And frankly, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you brag about being a better Christian and then tell a story about slinking away when things got hard? And I hope today when you leave, you won't be impressed with, 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 uh, arrogant, uh, with, with, uh, with false arrogance or worthless pride. I hope today when you leave, what you will be impressed with is the power of the living God. So let's begin with false arrogance. I, I see that in the very beginning, 16 through 21 of the passage that we read this morning. This, this idea of false arrogance. Paul was confronting people who were claiming to preach the gospel and were doing so with an arrogant confidence in who they were and what they were. And and a couple of things about false arrogance. First of all, false arrogance is arrogance of worldly wisdom. In other words, because of worldly wisdom and and the assumptions of worldly wisdom, you, you think you have something that you don't in fact have. Paul confronted those who were claiming superiority over his ministry and the gospel he preached because of their boasting according to the flesh. And he begins by responding to their boast with boast of his own. That's why he says in, in, in the early part of this, of this passage, he says, um, Let no one, think me, me, let no one let, think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. So in other words, he says, all right, we'll, we'll deal with this. We'll, if, you want, if you want some arrogance, I'll deal with you some arrogance. This boasting is not intended to refute the false teacher's boasting with better boasting. This boasting is intended to demonstrate the foolishness of all boasting. In other words, whatever you're boasting in, it doesn't really matter, is all worthless. So I'm going to give you some worthless boasting so that you'll understand mine is worthless and so is yours. That's why he says in verse 17, what I am saying with this boasting confidence, I say not as the Lord would say, but as the fool. In other words, this isn't righteous way to speak. This isn't the way the church ought to think, but this is foolishness. Three stinging accusations in verses 18 and 19 that I think we ought to pay attention to. First, he says that the false teachers are boasting according to the flesh. In other words, they're not boasting according to the righteousness of God. Then he says, the false teachers are fools. In other words, they're they're ignorant of what is actually true. And then he says, those who follow these false teachers are fools as well. Now, that's sort of laying it out to the church. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you think these men who are boasting have something to boast about, you're as big of a fool as they are in their boasting. In our own day, it seems that the further our culture moves away from any connection to biblical truth and a biblical worldview, there are the more there are self-proclaimed experts ready to instruct you on how to be happy while in rebellion, uh, uh, while you're in rebellion to the Word of God. Pay attention how often you're presented with people who claim to be experts in something. They never actually give you any identification of what makes them an expert other than the fact that they claim to be an expert. And those experts today are, they they will speak at length about how you can be happy while pursuing brokenness. How you can be fulfilled while rebelling against the righteous word of God. There are endless experts who have much to say about uh, uh, how to address such things as the rising suicide rates and the the dropping graduation rates and the the rising crime. And they have lots and lots of opinions on what should be done. But the one thing they will not dare recognize is the need for the importance of being faithful to the Word of God. Do you understand that one of the most basic things for a society to prosper, to cho- for children to be raised and do well in things in school and life, are some basic things like having children within the bond of marriage and mom and dad staying together to raise those children. But do you hear experts talking about that today? Oh, no. They'll tell you how we need to educate more, how we need to do economics, this and and that, but they will not speak about basic things of the word of God because they are experts in how to live a fulfilled life while rebelling against God. The world is arrogantly confident that their wisdom is greater than the created order of God and the law of God. An expert by very definition is saying, I know more than you. And most If not all of the worldly experts today are saying confidently, they know more than the Word of God. The world boasts with confidence in its wisdom, but this wisdom only seems wise when it is absent and disconnected from the Word of God. Friends, wisdom is found in seeking what is true, not lies that appeal to your arrogance so Paul is saying listen these experts in the church these false teachers oh they sound really smart they sound really wise but they're only wise according to the world not according to the word of God they have arrogance in their worldly wisdom and then there's this arrogance of faith in men in other words putting your faith in what the opinion and the wisdom of men is rather than the wisdom of God In verse 20, Verse 20 seems hard to believe that anyone would allow such things. Look in, look in your scriptures and just let me read this to you again. In verse 20 he says, For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame I must say we are too weak for that. Now when I'm reading that, and probably when you are reading that, the, the, the general response is that, well I don't know who's doing that, but I wouldn't dare allow anybody to do that. Who's going who's gonna to allow someone to enslave them, or allow someone to destroy them, or allow someone willingly to take advantage of them, or or to believe the false importance claimed by another. That's the idea of putting on, on airs. Or allow someone to strike you in the face without responding. Who would willingly allow such things to happen to them? The sense here is not that some invader has come in and done these things against the will of God. This is important, excuse me, against the will of the church. Paul's not saying, oh, some bad people have come in and done this and you're, you're, you're chafing against it, you're responding against it negatively. No, the, the sense is that the church has allowed and even welcomed those who have done these things. From the outside looking in, you may be tempted to be befuddled as to how this could be. Would you allow such things in your life? Would you willingly allow such things to, to come and be a part of this church? The answer is found at the end of verse 19, where Paul says, Being wise yourselves. The arrogance of sin is that you are convinced that putting your faith in things other than the gospel is wise. So, in other words, the church in their own arrogance, in their own false wisdom, had put their faith not in the Word of God, but in these men who were preaching and teaching a false gospel. Most often this arrogance is connected to elevating faith in men rather than faith in God. Uh, the The man who had denied his need for Jesus because he's placed his faith in his wealth has been given over to the arrogance of faith of men and men. The woman who has denied any identity in Jesus because she has found her identity in her abilities and, ta- and talents has been given over to the arrogance of faith in men. The high school student who has denied their dependence on the leadership of Jesus because they're confident they know all they need to know to accomplish their dreams and desires has been given over to the arrogance of faith in men. When you put your confidence in the opinion of men, you've been given over to the arrogance of faith in men. When you trust the wisdom of man over the word of God, you have given over you've been given over to the arrogance of faith in men. When you desire the praise of men more than the plea, than pleasing the Lord, you have been given over to faith in men. Paul saying to the church, you're more concerned and more aware of what these arrogant fools say than what the word of God says. You see, the redeemed boast only in the glory of Christ. In the very first part of verse 21, Paul says, to my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. What is he say? talking about too weak for what these arrogant boasters have done. Paul's response to all of this is to say, to my shame, I must say we are too weak for that to his shame before men, but not before God. That's a clear understanding. He's not shamed before the Lord, but he's saying, before you to my shame, because I didn't behave like these arrogant boasters have behaved. His weakness is not that he could not do as the false teachers had done in his flesh, but before the Lord, he could not bring himself to act so wickedly. In other words, I could have behaved that way, but before God, I'm too weak to be so arrogant as to act so foolishly before the lord brothers and sisters it is better to be shamed before men rather than before the lord do you hear me it's better to be shamed before men than to be shamed before the lord regardless of how wicked how the wicked live you must walk in humility and integrity before the lord the true judgment is the lord's judgment find your peace in pleasing the Lord, not in pleasing men. And let your boasting be in the glory of Christ and the good news of the gospel. Paul begins with false arrogance of those false teachers. And then he moves into this idea of worthless pride. So in verse, the second part of verse 21 through 29, Paul says, okay, if, if you want to brag and you want to talk about what an amazing apostle you are, I'll brag right along with you. And a couple of things he talks about here. First of all, he talks about pride in worldly identity. So in in verses 21 through 29, he allows himself to brag according to his accomplishments. And it's important to read these boasts in the context that Paul makes them, thats that it is foolishness. So Paul's not bragging here in that you would be impressed with him. He's bragging to to expose the foolishness of of this worldly pride. That's why he says in the last part of verse 21, I'm speaking as a fool. So this is not wisdom here. These are not boasts that Paul finds any real merit in, but, but, but offers them to refute the foolish boasting of the false teacher. So three worthless prides I wanna work through here. Number one, worldly identity, personal sacrifice, and personal achievements. So the first one is worldly identity. Pride in worldly identity is pride in who you are. Paul recognizes that the claim of identity that the false teachers made was a claim uh, that he could make as well. He says, "All right, so you say you're a Hebrew? Fine, I'm a Hebrew too. Say so you're an Israelite? Fine, I'm an Israelite too. You're a child of Abraham? Me too." Now, Paul made a similar boast in Philippians when he wrote in chapter three, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of the Israel, the, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a prosecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But he also says in that chapter, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of... Of Christ. Now, this is not to say who you are doesn't matter. Hear me very carefully. This is not to say that who you are doesn't matter. This is not a call for you to deny who you are. It does mean that worldly identity has no bearing on your righteousness and worthiness before the Lord. Do you hear me? If your great granddaddy was a faithful, pastor and preach the gospel well, praise God for that. You ought to tell people that's a good testimony of your family testimony but it has no bearing on whether or not your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Were you raised in the church? Praise God for that. Give thanks for godly parents who brought you to the house of the Lord that you might hear the gospel but being raised in the church does not guarantee that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You hear me? Your identity, I'm not saying deny who you are, but I'm saying that it's worthless to put pride in who you are. It does not mean that worldly identity has no bearing on your righteousness. It does mean that worldly identity has no bearing on your righteousness and worthiness before the Lord. And it does mean that your worldly identity gives you no special authority beyond the word of God. If For the last 15 generations, your family were theologians and pastors and those sort of things. Praise God for that. But that doesn't mean that you get to speak with authority beyond the word of God today. You are who you are. Listen to me carefully. You are who you are only by the sovereign grace of God. There's not a man, woman, child in this room that chose their mama or daddy. You didn't choose that, God chose that. Take pride in your identity, not in your identity of the flesh. Take pride in your identity in Christ. That's why Paul says, "Listen, you want to brag about being a Hebrew and Israelite a child of Abraham. Fine, I've got that too. That doesn't mean a hill of beans. The question is, does Jesus know you? And do you know the Lord? Take no pride in your your identity and worldly identity, and take no pride in in personal sacrifices. In verse 23, uh, Paul begins to talk about the the sacrifices that he has accomplished. The the greater testimony and boast is, is the personal sacrifice that Paul has given for the preaching of the gospel. And I think we need to say right now if we're in a contest of who's done more for Jesus, I think Paul wins. Listen, he beats me hands down. In verse 23, it makes me laugh just a little bit when when I read it. So verse 23 says, look at what he says, and are they they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a crazy person. So what he's saying, he says, are are you saying you're servants of Christ? I'm a better Christian than you are. And then he goes, "Oh, okay, all right, now I'm just talking crazy. (laughs) Now I've gone a little bit too far. When Paul says he is a better servant of Christ, he, he's neither saying that there is no, he, he, he's neither saying that there is uh, there's a, disti- there's, uh, that there's a distinction in the kingdom, nor that, that, that these false teachers are even servants of Christ. So he's not saying that you can be a better or worse Christian, and he's also not saying that these, these false teachers are actually servants of Christ. I think the better way to read this verse is this. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one than they are. No, just kidding. Now I'm talking crazy. He wanted to be sure you understood that he was talking crazy when he referred to the false teachers as servants of Christ. And he wanted to be sure you understood that he was talking crazy when he was boasting that he was a better servant of Christ. Now the truth is, Paul had a lot to point to as evidence of great personal sacrifice for the kingdom of God. Here's his resume. He's been imprisoned. He's had countless beatings. He's often been near death. All of these things on account of his work of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus on his missionary journeys. He says five times he's received the 40 lashes less one. 40 lashes was considered almost like a death sentence. So they would give you 39 to spare your life. Three times he'd been beaten with a rod stoned once, three times shipwrecked. He'd spent a night and a day adrift at sea. And then just in some general sense, he says, often in danger while on his missionary journeys. He had per- He'd done hard work. He had sleepless nights. Often he had gone without food and water, and often in the cold and wet. Now, the truth is, Few can make such boasts. And and Paul certainly understood that according to the boasting of the flesh, he had more to brag about than probably anybody in the church and certainly those who were the false teachers in the church. These boasts only are impressive. Listen to me carefully. These boasts are only impressive before men, but they're not impressive at all before God. What comparison do these things and more have to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? You hear me? Just that one act but add to that, what, what impressiveness does this have? Jesus, Paul living uh, hungry and cold and the wet and beatings and, 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 and being uh, beaten with a rod and shiver. What does that have to do compared to the, the, the Jesus who was, existed eternally in the glory of heaven, stepping out of the glory of heaven into the mess, muck, and mire of this world to know hunger and cold and all the rest? How does that compare? And the frank answer is it doesn't compare. False teachers can't compare their service to Paul's service, but Paul understands he can't compare his service to what Jesus has done for us. Friends, you do not serve God to earn salvation. You serve God because you could never earn or deserve salvation. True boasting is not in what you have done for the Lord. True boasting is only in what Christ has done for you. The foolishness here that Paul is exposing is if you're boasting about what you've done for Jesus, you don't get it because those who truly know Jesus boast about what he's done for you. Don't boast about your worldly identity. Don't boast about your uh, pride and personal sacrifice. And and lastly, there's no pride in personal investment. Look at what he says in verse 28 and 29. Paul says in verse 28, he says, and apart from other things, There's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not also weak? In other words, am I not weak with you? Who is made to fall or or to fall into sin? Am I not brokenhearted or indignant? So he makes one additional boast here in these two verses, and that is, and I characterize this as the pride of personal investment. In verse 28, Paul personally feels the constant pressure and burden of the well-being of churches. In the first part of 29, Paul personally we- walk in the weakness of the weak of the church members. And the second part of verse 29, Paul personally feels great concern when Christians are led into sin. Now, I don't think this is an idle boast of his. There's no other who had invested as much or felt more personally invested in the church. Friends, listen, this is not disconnected from reality. If you've invested your life in in the church, if you've invested your life into into a a brother or sister who's come to know Jesus, you have a deep personal investment for their well-being, for their success and their walk with the Lord. You grieve when they walk away from the Lord. You celebrate when God uses them greatly. You worry, to use a, a, a common term, for them and how well they are doing for the Lord. Yet Paul shows that this boast too must be put under the same foolishness as the previous two because no amount of personal investment gives you authority beyond the word of God. Oh, you can grieve and mourn all you want over the church, but at the end of the day, it is still the Lord's church, not yours. Personal investment tends to lead you to claim ownership and rights over something. However, the church is the Lord's. If anybody ever tells you, Well, my family gave the land for that church, be careful for what follows that. Because it's probably that boast in personal investment generally comes with an, an assumption of personal authority. My family's been in this church X amount of years. Praise God for that. But usually that boast, of personal investment comes with some assumption of personal authority. I've been a member of this church all my life. I've served on all these committees. I've done these great things for the church. That boast generally precedes a claim of unbiblical personal authority. Friends, the church is the Lord's. You and I may feel personally invested in the church, but only Jesus has died for the church. Do you hear me? You and I may feel personally invested in the church, but only Jesus has died for the church, and only Jesus is the head of the church. Friends, not to press the point too far, but if you are the head of the church, then it's no longer a church. Be careful of worthless pride and worldly identity and personal sacrifice and in personal investment. Lastly, I want to point you to true power. So Paul says in verse 30, and and if you're familiar with 2 Corinthians, you know that the next chapter, Paul really doubles down on this, the power of God being displayed in weakness. And we'll certainly get to that. But I want to give some attention to these last few verses and the way Paul deals with them here. In verse 30, he says, If I must boast. So in other words, everything I've said before this is really foolishness, and it ought not to be said. But if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. True power. First of all, God's power is demonstrated in our weakness. Verse 30 is the end of foolishness. And here Paul connects his boasting with something strange. If he is going to boast, he will boast in what demonstrates his weakness. Now he'll fill out what this means in the following chapter. So just to give you a foretaste of that, in chapter 12, Paul writes these words, My grace... So Jesus, speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in, of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am confident with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have been a, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. For all these things that Paul could point to as points of pride, demonstrations of his authority and testimonies of power, he instead points to things that show his weakness. Friends, when you boast in the power of man, listen to me carefully. When you boast in the power of man, eventually you will be proved weak and powerless in the light of the power of God. But when you boast in your weakness, you show more beautifully and more perfectly what God is doing through you and when you show what God is doing through you, you become a conduit and a testimony for the power and the majesty and the glory of God. And I don't think what Paul is saying here is false humility. I think this is a recognition of where the true power and the true glory is. I don't think he's saying, listen, just all oh, look at me and this false humility of weakness. No, I think he's saying, listen, the weaker I am, the more... The more Greater testimony is the power of God given. When you've known the power and the glory of God, you lose all pride in human ability and desire that the glory of God be, uh, the, the, and you desire more that the glory of God be known through you. And for the glory of God to be known through you, you have to get weak or demonstrate your weakness, and then He is demonstrated through that weakness His power and His glory. God's power is demonstrated in your weakness. And in our weakness, we testify to what God is doing. Now, for me, studying this passage, this brings us to the strangest, oddest section of the passage altogether. So maybe you've been with me so far. So you're with me. We should reject uh, um, worthless arrogance. And and we should be careful of these these elements of pride that, that really are not worthy of, uh, uh, of our pride as, as all. And maybe you've been totally with me with, yes, God's power is demonstrated in our weakness. But then you get to verse 31 through 33, and it seems a little strange, at least at first glimpse. So this account of being let down a wall in a basket does not seem to be boasting in his abilities. And, and so... I don't think it's, it is not connected to his foolish boasting in the things of the flesh. What he is doing is giving a testimony to his boasting in the things that show his weakness. Now, follow this with me for just a moment. When you and I tell a story about ourselves, we naturally edit what we tell and what we leave out. So we tell about the moments that we got something right. We love to tell those stories when everybody else didn't get it, but we got it first and we were trying to tell folks. Well, I tried to tell them what to do because it makes us look smart and intelligent and and wise. We we ignore moments when we got something wrong. We never tell the story when we were the ones going, oh, you ought not to do that. And in fact, it was the right thing to do. We, We just ignore that part. We tell of the times when we were successful, and yet we ignore the moments of failure. We, like our social media posts, we tend to curate our life to present ourselves in the best possible light. You don't ever post on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram those moments that you failed. No, you put the picture when all the family is happy and smiling, not the time the family is at each other's throats. Amen? The story that Paul shares reveals not a moment of what you and I would boast about. This actually shares and reveals a moment of failure what he's saying here is that he was preaching the gospel the governor the the leader the political power of the community chased him out of town it's a moment of humiliation you might have thought paul big bold paul who wrote so much of the New Testament, and we, have, we do have testimony of him standing up against great, powerful people to preach the gospel. You might have thought that maybe he would, have, he would have stood up before the governor and said, I'll preach the gospel no matter what, even if you kill me. But no, what Paul says is hiding in a basket, cowering in a basket. Some friends of his let him down out a window down the wall. It's a moment of humiliation. He didn't leave the city with his head held high, but crouching in a basket. Certainly a moment of weakness. The authorities and powers of the world seemed at that moment to be unchallenged, and it had to have felt like being let down a basket out the wall that the ministry and the work that Paul had done in that city had been a waste, a failure, and unsuccessful. And yet this is the story that Paul points to in his defense against false teachers. So, don't miss the contrast. He's defending his ministry against people who sounded better, probably looked better, and preached better than he did. And the story he uses to demonstrate his authority and his his effectiveness for the kingdom against those who looked better, sounded better, and preached better than he did, he he chooses to tell a story of failure, of humiliation, of weakness. You see, in this moment, Paul's ministry seemed to be a failure. But in that moment, God was working to establish his kingdom and to build his church. In this moment, Paul was humiliated, but Paul understood that God was glorified and pleased. In this moment, it seemed like the world was winning, but God was on his throne and was perfectly accomplishing his will. He tells a story, not of his success, but of his failure. He tells a story, not of his pride, but of his humility. He tells a story, not of his strength, but of his weakness, because he understood that in that story, it testified that through him, preaching even in places where governors ran him out of town, preaching in places even when he had to hide in a basket to sneak out of town for the sake of his life, God was working through him to save the lost, to change the world for the the kingdom of God and to glorify the name of God forever and ever and ever. Our natural desire of the flesh is to present ourselves to the world as strong and mighty. And frankly, we desire others to be impressed with our ability, our wisdom and strength. Yet the testimony of Scripture points to a very uncomfortable truth that the people whom God uses are the ones with great disabilities, are not the ones with great abilities or wisdom or strength, but glaring disabilities and glaring weaknesses. Do you know the story of Gideon? Gideon's the guy that God used as a great warrior. In fact, when God speaks to him first, he calls him a great and mighty warrior. But do you remember that when Scripture first introduced Gideon to us, he's hiding from the invaders in a winepress? We remember Moses as the one who confronted Pharaoh, let my people go. And yet, when when God first called Moses, he tried to excuse himself from what God was doing because he said, I can't speak and I'm really not equipped for this. We remember David as the great king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel, a mighty king and a mighty warrior, however, Among his family, he was so small, he was so insignificant that when the prophet came to anoint the next king, they didn't even bother to call him in because surely God could not use somebody so weak and small as David. It is the same today. The world glorifies and celebrates what can be accomplished by the power of men. But followers of Christ glory and and celebrate in what honors the Lord. And my call to you this morning is to glory in weakness. Because only in your weakness will the true power and the true glory of God be revealed. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment, all for the King and all for the Kingdom.